Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Battier. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast brought to you by AWS Energy. I'm your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories from the people solving the energy challenges of modern life. Right now, we are recording at the Offshore Technology Conference. Big thanks to the Offshore Technology Conference for allowing us to be here, and an even bigger thanks to Fifth Ring for sponsoring the OTC Podcast Pavilion. Fifth Ring is a global B2B marketing and communications agency with over 30 years of experience in the energy sector and beyond. And its presence in Houston, Aberdeen, and Singapore enables the agency to help companies all over the world build better brands and sell more stuff. Learn more about Fifth Ring by visiting fifthring.com. The link will be in the show notes. I am here today with Patrick Rooney, Director of Marketing at Municipal Group of Companies and I missed a word there. <laughs> Director of Manufacturing at Municipal Group of Companies and Jerry Scott, General Manager of R3 Environmental Systems. Today we are going to dig into ideas around remediation, reuse and and kind of those fun topics. So let's get into the conversation. Jerry, Pat, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would please share with me and the audience your backgrounds and a quick introduction to Municipal Group of Companies and R3 Environmental Systems. Thanks, Joe. Really glad to be here um, at the OTC, which is a fantastic show. I'd like to thank the OTC as well. Um, but the opportunity to have us speak on our company's behalf. So I'm Patrick Rooney, and I'm the Director of Manufacturing for the Municipal Group of Companies. We're a privately owned company. and We have amazing ownership and, and executive that allows us to reach out and to try and make these processes what we're doing in the world better. So um, I've been part of the success story for the Municipal Group of Companies for the last two decades, and um, really proud to be a part of that group, and R3 Environmental Systems being one of those subsidiaries uh, that I've had the pleasure in working with. Jerry? Uh, Jerry Scott, General Manager of R3. Uh, been in the environmental industry for over 30 years now, dealing with different technologies and systems. Been at R3 for the past eight years, and as Pat said, very uh, pleased and glad to be working with this company that allows you a lot of latitude to go out and explore different technologies and develop new technologies that don't exist before. So it's just a great place to work. All right. Thank you for that introduction. I really like the, the idea of the research and the technology, and it's very exciting to hear that coming from a private company and looking to find and develop solutions. Really quickly, I just want to make sure we all understand what is the relationship between municipal group of companies and R3? So the municipal group of companies is, is mainly a large heavy civil, um, also with transportation, courier. Um, we're into the landfilling, into garbage collection, that kind of stuff. R3 comes in as it was in Virasol, which primarily was um, for treating soils uh, and stabilizing and, and actually using um, you know, thermal desorption units to, to 
recover the, 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 the soil back to its original state. Um, so when this all come about after all of the, the tanks in the grounds for the, all the gas stations started to be leaking and they started coming out of the ground, that's when this developed. 1994 is when this, there was a big kick on thermal desorption units and Envirosol got into that. Since then, uh, R3 has is, is started looking at these processes in a more environmentally friendly way and not just the standard way of just burning off hydrocarbons. And what we decided to do is we tried to look at it as a recovery uh, effort. And with the recovery effort, we wanted to use every single aspect of, of the materials that we could use to reuse into the process and reuse into um, things. So anything could be done in situ or, or anywhere else. So we looked at these processes and then uh, Jerry, um, we brought Jerry aboard and we started looking at these processes very hard to say, what, what is the big problems today? And, and one of those problems was the drilling waste. In 2019, there's $7.24 billion spent on drilling fluids and all but 6% come back as waste. So therefore, we're looking at it as, hey, this is a huge potential, huge market that there's a large problem worldwide and how do we solve this? And so I went after Jerry here and we, we started putting our heads together and saying, you know, what do we do next? And uh, just to elaborate that, R3 is just a, basically a subsidiary of Municipal Enterprises, which is our umbrella company. Okay. And just to confirm, I can refer to it as R3? Yes. Is that okay? Yes. All yes. right. Great. So that's very, that's very interesting, and I like that kind of progression of the company, first working in, in the civil <laughs> engineering space and then getting into what sounds like almost brownfield cleanup and then needing solutions, which is where the, the R3 came from. And, and the original name was Envirosoil. Is that what you said? Yeah, correct, Envirosoil. Yep. Yeah, so basically starting with cleaning up as you're cleaning up these brownfields and now to the point of saying, okay, how can we take this solution that we've developed and apply it to another challenge in the market today? That's, that's very cool and fun to hear. So you mentioned drilling fluids and how this is kind of where we're looking. I guess, can you tell me a little bit more, what, what is the, I guess, what is this challenge with drilling fluids? What, what is the current state of, of what we do with drilling fluids? So drilling fluids is a very um, unique challenge in the sense of they have to make a, an emulsion that stays together, keeps the borehole solid, and keeps the drill bit cool. And all of these things that they designed to make sure that under high pressure and all these situations, that that all stays together the way they want it. Now it's going in the hole and out the hole, and then they're cleaning it with centrifuge and stuff like that. But eventually that becomes waste. And typically that waste would be taken and used with a thermal desorption unit, which uses a lot of energy, a lot of fuel, and they'll burn off those hydrocarbons and then crack the oil that's in there. So it becomes like a waste oil, but can't be reused at all. So with those, we have to find out how to break those emulsions without using chemicals, because our process doesn't use chem chemicals. We didn't want to add anything to it. We didn't want to add anything to the footprint. So we really looked at how we're going to do this um, without, without those things. And Jerry, you could explain some of the other problems that goes with it and where that stuff generally yeah. goes to now. The, the, the drilling fluid is, is comprised, the main component is what they call a base oil. And with, with the focus on environment over the past few years, the base oil has switched from being pure diesel to a more refined product. It's a low toxicity mineral oil or synthetic fluid. So very high energy, more elaborate process, more greenhouse gas emissions to, to make that base fluid. So in the typical process today, when they drill the well, that mud comes back and that 
basalt is gone, it's a waste. Nobody can recover it to be reused. So our process is to focus on rec how do we recover that base fluid, and that's what we developed as technology, was to recover that synthetic or low-toxicity drilling fluid so that we can reuse it again and again and again. That's it's very interesting. We're going to jump into that. I, 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 as you were talking, one of the things that jumped out to me is like, Drilling fluid is almost like the the single-use plastic of the oil and gas industry. Yes. We make this stuff, you can use it once, and then it sounds like the easiest way to clean it or make it so you can move it is just burning it all. And then that's mostly what people do. It's burnt or it's recovered in such a way that it's not in its virgin state anymore, so it can't be used for its original purpose. Or as we say, it's downcycled versus recycled because it can't be used for its original purpose, but our process allows it to be reused back in its original purpose, its original state. That's, that's great. So I do want to talk about the, the larger impact here because we use drilling fluid for basically every well. What, I guess, what portion, or maybe you said <coughs> large-scale, $7.2 billion part of the industry, I, when we talk about in terms of like an individual well or an individual project. Do we have any idea what size this is in terms of gallons or barrels or, or cost for a project? Yeah, but a, a typical well, it depends on how deep the well is and the type of formation, but it could run anywhere between, you know, a thousand cubes to 2,000 cubes of waste mud that they get back. And typically that's disposed of anywhere between, you know, Four to six hundred dollars U.S. per ton, just straight disposal. Get rid of it. Uh, plus, you, that material all has to be transported to a treatment facility, and it's gone. So the, the the oil company has to buy new base material to replace that to make more mud. So, like I say, in, in our process, we bring it back to our facility, we reclaim it, and we can give that base oil back to the industry to to reuse back and making more mud. So, as part of the overall process, it's it's the most waste that are that comes off of the drilling process is comprised of the modern cuttings. Yeah, thanks, Jerry. And I just wanted to touch on the point that we are so highly portable that we can go into the regions where transportation is really hard to get to, where our, our unit is, is basically containerized, that it can go to a, a, a location um, that we could utilize those and give it right back to the oil company without all that extra transportation. So that really helps out with uh, a lot of places that are very unique, that, are, that have oil in places that are very hard to get to. And these base fluids, are, let's face it, they're, they're, they're only made in certain places. So there's transportation involved in all those things. So that, so that also helps. Yeah, I guess I didn't, I never thought about you would be bringing in all of the fluids and then presumably bringing I, out three times that waste. Yeah. Because the, the base fluid is just a component of the drilling mud itself. So you, you may bring in a thousand cubes of base fluid and bring out three or four thousand cubes of mud. For wow. Yeah. And, and years ago, that material was typically left on site. A hole was dug and it was dumped into site and just covered over. And it's, but as environmental practices improved and they started dirt burning it and trying to recover it in such a ways. And, and we're the next step in that evolution of recovering that base oil. Yeah, so let's jump into the actual solution here because we haven't really even talked about it yet at all. So we kind of understand the, the current status. People just burn it and then, and then dispose of it. So how are you actually recovering this base fluid? What, what is this solution called? And what is different about your process, I guess, 
a roundabout way of asking, how are you actually able to clean up the drilling mud? Well, when we first start looking at this process, we look at it from a different perspective. Um, and the perspective was Dyson vacuum cleaners. Dyson didn't invent the cyclone, but he's the first one to put a cyclone in a vacuum cleaner. Hmm. So we looked at old technologies that were effective in different methods. With these old technologies that we know that are successful in each part of their industry, we looked at them and said, how do we put them together to make a solution for what we're doing? So what we looked at that we thought was the best recovery method was vacuum distillation. Vacuum distillation allows us to take the oil, the fluids that's in the oil, in the mud, and if we could get that so we can get it to the right heat and the right temperature and the right vacuum, that we could take this oil off without degrading the oil. The challenges were, of course, with, with this type of distillation is nobody's ever really put solids in the distillation column. <laughs> it's not typical practice. And what we're doing is we're, we're, we're changing the viscosity through the process as we start pulling these off, then we get to really hard solids. And then, so all of these processes is, is probably why nobody's ever done it. I'm sure a lot of people have thought about it. We're not going to be the first ones to think about it, but they've never done it because of all the challenges that were involved in that. So what we do is we take it, we put it under uh, 20 to 30 millimeters of mercury of vacuum. We recirculate it, just get enough heat in there to boil off the hydrocarbons that we're looking for. If, the, the com if it's comprised of you know, C10 to C24, that's the, the hydrocarbons that we pull off. And then we take that, we recondense those vapors into a fluid, and then we separate the oils and waters. It's really simple technology when you think about it. The challenges really become in the process of how you do all that. As Pat said, the vacuum distillation has been around for years. It's still used in refineries. He said, we were the only ones crazy enough to pump solids through it. So <laughs> we said, let's try it and see what happens. And it, uh, yeah, it with a lot of challenges. Right? Sometimes so, that's what it takes is thinking yeah. about that crazy idea. Yeah. Nobody's ever done it. Let's try it. Yeah. And yeah, as you pointed out, there, yeah. there are more than likely going to be challenges. Yeah. But I think you being here and having this solution is evidence that those challenges can be overcome. Now, I, I'm pretty sure you just explained what area in terms of what you're recovering and what kind of drilling fluids you can work with, but just in case that maybe is above somebody's head talking about the C14 to 30, is there a drilling fluid that you can't clean up? Uh, not really. I mean, as long as it's pumpable and we can get it into our system and it's uh, temperature range is within our operational range, but most base drilling fluids today are well within our operating parameters. So with all the base fluids out there today, and uh, there's really nothing we couldn't process to recover the base fluids. Right? No, and to just add to that, um, we're, we're, when we're recovering these units, we're recovering the oil, which is very valuable. We're recovering the water that could be reused into the process because there's no chlorides in it. And we've taken that out. It's distilled water. And then we're also treating the solids either to a landfill disposal or we're treating them into industrial fuel pellet that in certain locations could really be reused. So our process is not just taking the waste and minimizing that waste. We're reducing that waste 100% um, in, the right, in the right fields. Wow. Yeah, so in our circumstances, like the Pat's it in the right location, we have nothing to go as a landfill or disposal facilities. 100% of the, the waste drill mud is reused in some format. That's exciting. Do you have an example that you can talk about on one of these 100% reuse uh, case studies? Yeah, so we, we, we actually come up with an industrial fuel pellet that, could, uh, that was tailored to the, to the cement 
industry. So in in the making of cement, um, we've added some some things that are very valuable to cement. But of course, when the drilling fluids are first made, they're made with bar right and some of the things that are that are good for that. Um, we added a few more components to kind of get it to stick together as those those pellets and stuff like that that really tailored to the cement industry and. And in fact, if there's a cement kiln around, that they would love to have our fuel pellets because it's the same. It's the same BTU value as wood is what we made it out of. Wow, that's exciting. So I, you can get 100% recovery. What in areas where there aren't a cement cement processing facility nearby, where you're just getting the water and the the oil, and then the the other solid component does go to the landfill what type of recovery are we talking about here so you've got four gallons of drilling mud or, or however you want to measure it how much of that actually comes back in reusable product uh, the drilling fluid itself typically we recover about at least 80 percent of that drilling fluid uh, the water gets recovered 100 percent and the residual solids i mean if there's no cement kiln uh, it can be used in, in any type of industrial furniture boiler, biomass burner, but if there's nothing like that in the area, we can further dry the solids to less than 1% hydrocarbons, and those solids can be used, if, again, if there's a need to make brick, or it can be simply, then it might have to go to landfill if there's no other alternative use for it. But we really try to focus on finding an alternative use for, for the solids as well. But again, it all depends on what, where we're at. Yeah. Right. And our recovery on the oil is three to one, so we're using one, one part of the fuel for to heat our, our, our furnaces, our, to, to, um, to heat the, the hot oil, which is circulating through our system. And then the other two parts are really what's going back to them. So we're not even buying any fuel for our system. We're supplying our fuel. And the BTU value of some of the stuff we're using is over 20,000 BTU per pound. So it's even more efficient than diesel fuel. So we're reusing that fuel in, within our own process. So we're really self-sustaining. Yeah, that's, that's exciting, especially it sounds like with the containerized system and you're generating your own power to run the system, this is really a great solution for, yeah. for kind of the entire industry wherever they're drilling. Yeah, no matter where they're at, we can go there and we can minimize their, their purchase of, of virgin material. We can help ease logistics problems or supply chain issues because we recycle the drilling fluid over and over. And at the end of the day, you know, the waste is minimized and they can reuse that base drilling fluid on another project. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm curious, as we talk about specific, specific value adds for this, what do you see people most interested in? You just said supply chain and being able to minimize drive time and loads. There's also the obvious value add of, of being able to reuse the fluid so there's less cost but I guess what is and then I, I want to get into sustainability as well in a second here what do you find is really of most interest right now well even some of the people at this show have, have talked to us really today is about uh, supply chain issues and logistics with everything going on in the world today as you know it's a tough time to get anything from from wood to to food products to to uh, specialty chemicals so some of the people, uh, companies have come up to us and said this would be a great solution for logistics, supply chain issues, and those kind of things. So in addition to the benefits of, of the recovering of the fluid and greenhouse gas reduction emissions, it, you know, it just helps their day-to-day -day operations, which is what they're focused on, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when we talk about 
sustainability, there's obviously that sustainability ad. I wonder, are there any companies that you've seen starting to bring this into their ESG reports or talking about their emission standards and how they're reducing them? Or are there, are there companies utilizing this resource to then show how they are being more environmentally friendly? Yeah, I think a lot of the companies are focusing on sustainability. It's always a part of their annual reports. So they're looking for every little, I guess, nook and cranny or opportunity to, to increase, you know, to, to in, increase what they're perceived as being environmentally friendly and sustainable. So, so this is a step. So once it, we can get the technology more out there into the field, uh, I'm, I'm sure they'll start integrating the CO2 reductions associated with our technology into their sustainability reports. Yeah, so I just want to touch on that too. I mean, we are very, very new to the space, Joe, and uh, and what we're looking at is is you know with your help and, and thanks for having us here to 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 get our message out there that this is this is how we can help your companies do things and and, and you know and we're we're a good company to work for work with and and just wanted to say you know that our process um, is unique as it's the only one we are patented in eighteen countries so. That's being said is we are unique in what we're doing and, and the results are showing really, really, really good numbers. So, I mean, we think that this is, this is a new technology, but it is something that we think would be very sustainable in the future. I mean, we're not a huge component of reducing the greenhouse gas, but it definitely helps. On a typical well, we'll, we'll reduce their, their carbon footprint by about 500 tons, depending on where they're at in logistics. Mm-hmm. and. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a part of going in that sustainability route. I mean, uh, a normal drill rig will burn 20 to 30 cubes of diesel fuel every day, which is about 6,000 tons a month. So, I mean, our, our 500 tons is a significant portion of that, right? But yeah. when you add on all the other factors that they have in the operations, of course, we, we become a smaller part, but we're still a significant part of reducing their carbon footprint. Yeah, yeah, and I think the, it's, it's good to understand what the size is there the 500 versus 6,000 a month just to drill the wells. But when we talk about some of these new well pads, we're talking about 20 plus wells on a well pad. So those 20 wells multiplied by that 500, that adds up. up. Yeah, it it adds up. And presumably the the drilling should ideally get shorter and shorter. So that should make this a a more significant point. And the other thing to remember that because we recover the fluid over and over and over, you know, that 500 tons is kind of magnified, right? So one cube can reduce 500, and then 500, and then 500. So the compounding effect. Yeah. One question I, I forgot to ask, is there a limit to how many times you can run a drilling fluid through this? Not that we found yet. But, uh... No, I mean, by recovering it under um, low atmospheric pressure, under vacuum, we are well below the numbers that you would normally be heating it at to, to vaporize it because we've lowered the boiling point. So we're vaporizing it at 170 degrees Celsius in comparison to 350 degrees Celsius so that we're not cracking at all. So um, we have found no ill effects on the oil whatsoever. We've, we've tested it. We've run it through our system multiple times to do those tests and everything else. So we've been doing this since 2017 from pilot to commercial phases, and uh, we haven't found any degradation of the oil. Yeah. I mean, the, the process parameters are... You know, from a chemical perspective, there's nothing there that should prevent the oil from being reused multiple times. Yeah, yep. yeah, that's great to hear that there's no no degradation of the oil, yep. and I'm sure that would be be an operator's concern. And our oil has been recertified to be equivalent to the virgin 
base oil as well. So independently verified. And we have the same cast number as the virgin base fluid that we've done our testing on. So yeah. it's, not, it's not just us saying it's equivalent. It's, it's other people have been verified it as well. So <laughs> Yeah, and that's yeah. great, being able to certify that. And, yeah. and essentially, at that point, you're getting the same oil, yep. same operating parameters. Yep. And branded second source oil. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. had to put a name on it. So, yes, yeah, so the second source drilling fluid is second source. Is what we recall, recall it, yeah. right? This, this may be a, a, a left field kind of question, but have you noticed or have you seen any value in that second source oil in, I guess, additionality for something like in California where there are, are significant kind of heavy environmental regulations for, for industrial processes? No, we, we haven't really gone down that, that rabbit hole, I guess. I mean, uh, the big benefit in somewhere like California, of course, is your water shortage. I mean, with our recovery of water, I mean, you have to take a lot less water from the aquifers or from the lakes. So you can reuse our water as well, right? So sometimes the water becomes as valuable as the base oil, depending wow. on where you're at, whether it's California or third world countries that have, you know, water issues. And then they want to prevent taking water from the aquifers or drinking lakes. So the water recovery sometimes is as important as the base fluid. Interesting. Yeah, that's something I, I don't think about enough. The fact that that water is, can be just as valuable, even though like for geothermal, most of the geothermal in the U.S. is in Nevada, a very yep. dry place. And typically water is the, is the biggest problem there. Um, very interesting. So I think it's clear how, how this technology can make a significant impact both from a financial perspective, from a sustainability perspective, and from a supply chain and, and just being able to streamline your operations. So how do, you, how do we drive more industry adoption? I guess it's just, just awareness and trying to get people to buy into it. I mean, everyone's resistant to change. Everyone is resistant to trying something new. So it's just you know, trying to pound those doors, show that analytical, show them the benefits and try to convince them as we're taking, taking a risk chance on, right? We're, we're doing a program this summer with a, a large uh, uh, mud supply company that's going to do some actual testing in, in the field of taking our fluids and making muds and actually using them downhold. And uh, so, so that's, that's step number one, I guess. But it's really just driving awareness. And we're new to this space. It's back in a test. It's, we haven't been in it in 20 years, so we're still trying to figure out the players and who to, who to contact and who to talk to. Very cool. Pat, did you have anything you wanted to add? No, and, it, and it's, it's the same as Yuri said. We're very new to the space. Um, we're a very reputable company, so we're, we're, we're very, very excited to start working with some of these other companies. We've had a lot of interest, um, but you know how that is. You get a lot of door, door kickers and stuff like that, but until it's used and somebody says, hey, we're using that same oil downhole and it's working, um, until that happens, I think, once that happens, when it happens, um, which will be soon this year, uh, I think you're going to see a lot more interest. Yep. yep. Yeah, that'll be great. Well, with that, I want to transition into our final questions. It looks like we've got some time to do that today. So these are the questions I ask all of my guests since both of you are here. I want both of you to answer that first question being, what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? So my favorite book um, by far, and I've bought this for many of my employees and everything else, is uh, The Greatness Guide by Robin Sharma. And uh, it's a phenomenal book. It's an easy read. 
Each chapter is only about two pages long, and it really helps you think about how people are doing things within all kinds of different industries and how you could really make yourself and the people around you better. Mine is not quite as deep as Pat and a little bit more morbid. I like It by Stephen King. <laughs> because it's the, it's the only book that's made me uh, put it down because tears are running down my face laughing and the only book that gave me nightmares. So <laughs> it covers the whole gamut. So it's, uh, yeah, it sounds like a, yeah. a good one. Yeah. I've watched the first movie, yeah. but I don't know if I'm going to be able to read the books. The book, the first 100 pages, oh, is a struggle. <laughs> All right. Character development, but it's good after that. It's uh, not as deep as some people think. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The next question, when will we be net zero as a society? Long after we're gone. <laughs> I think that's going to take uh, a long time and a lot of changes technology-wise and attitude-wise and, and, and just operational-wise. I think it's a long road before this, the world becomes net zero. I think you'll get there eventually, but it's it's... It's not, it's not as easy a task as some people say. They think, you know, net zero, we'll just stop doing this, we'll stop doing that. It's, it's not as easy. I mean, look at hydrocarbons, for example. Everyone wants to get rid of it. If you took away everything where we're sitting today that had hydrocarbons in it, we'd be sitting on the floor naked. <laughs> I mean, there's hydrocarbons in everything. Yeah. So even when you stop drilling, what do you do for the petrochemical industry, right? For plastics and tablecloths, even clothing. So the hydrocarbons is not just burning fuels. It's all the other things that go along with it, right? Yeah. I'm not going to be as morbid. <laughs> Consensus and cooperation. And we commitment. Um, so the three C's there are really what I think has to happen. Um, we can do it. We sometimes put our efforts in the wrong places. And I think we need to pay smart people to solve hard problems. And I think that's the solution to everything. I don't want to give everyone a nickel for a pop bottle. I'm sorry. I want to give that money to somebody who could solve the pop bottle problem. And I think we'll get there eventually, but as Pat said, it's, it's, it's a process, it's a long process, it's not an easy process, and it's going to take a lot of money and a lot of smart people and a lot of changes in society and the things we buy and the things we do. Right? It's, 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 a long, it's a long journey. Yep, I absolutely agree. I think that's a, a great, great answer and a great way to look at it. I'm curious with that idea, if you are willing to answer, Pat, when you talk about giving, paying smart people to solve the hard problems and you want to invest big money to solve those problems, to me, one of my first, I, I guess, thoughts is something like fusion, fusion technology for generating power. And we've spent a lot of money on that and so far, even with the smartest minds, we're, we're not quite there yet. So when we talk about solving problems, is it, from your perspective, is it more important to try to hit that home run, get that moonshot, or should we be funding multiple ideas and trying to get maybe 20, 20 base hits as opposed to one grand slam? Oh, I agree, 20 base hits is the way to go. Uh, no question. I mean, every 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 city, every province, state, country is going to do things differently. You know, you, you look at when you had the fires in Kuwait. It was amazing how everyone put those fires out. It's like everyone had a different idea, but everyone worked. When they thought it was going to take nine years to do it, they did it in months. 
And and by doing that, everyone had a different technology. You know, uh, in Texas, they put the bulldozer up there and blew it up. And then it, when they, they the the, um, the other countries come in, they put a jet engineer, blew it out. So it's like all of those solutions were put forth because there was a major thing going on with COVID. You look at uh, the, the same thing. All the drug companies that come forth, everyone had a different idea. And, you know, multiple of them worked. So I think that's the solution. I mean, we're going to space again, and, uh, and when we're going to space, it's not one company anymore; it's multiple people. Yeah. So I think it's a, it's a solution for everybody because not everyone's going to be right, like, um, but we learn from each other's mistakes, and that's where we're at. We're, we've we've learned this process because we're 200 mistakes ahead of the competition. Yeah, I like Pat said. Everyone tries to look at the grand slams, but you know, people say debt by a thousand cuts, but sometimes it's success by a thousand innovations, right? It's those small little innovations that take you to the next step instead of those big grand slams. The grand slams are nice, but they're, you know, but they're, they're, they're far and few in between. It's the baby steps that get you there. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I like that. I've never heard success by a thousand little innovations. I just got a trademarked. <laughs> Trademark. Done. Get it while it's there. So the last question, now yeah. you actually get to ask me a question. And I, I think we've got time. You both yeah. can ask me a question. I guess so, 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 so what do you think your perspective is on, on a net, net zero yeah, world I, by a certain date? I agree. I think it's going to take, I like the way you put it much better than I usually put it, Pat, the consensus, cooperation, and commitment, because it is going to take all of us. It's going to take innovation. It's going to take new technology, and it is going to take a, a consensus on what are we trying to achieve and what are we willing to do to get there? Because there, there are a lot of things we either need to choose to give up or things that we need to choose to pay more for or do in a different way. And right now, we, we don't have that. We want, we want everything. We want to be comfortable, and we want to have our lives exactly the way it is today, and we want to pay less for it. Yep. That's kind of where we are in society. And... and I don't think that that's wrong to want that, but I do think that you should have some type of willingness to work harder for something you do want. Agreed, yeah. That's my answer. Good one. <laughs> Good answer. Um, you know, I, don't really, I don't really think I have a question for you except that, um, one, I'm curious uh, on, on on this space, um, but two, how have you found the OTC so far this year compared to other years? This year, I, <laughs> I feel like you can start seeing the remnants of what OTC was. So prior to COVID, OTC was, was a massive conference. It used to be beyond just this building. And I think that we've added it feels like we have added another five or six rows of companies here at OTC. And it, it definitely feels more lively, more energetic, very exciting. And, and like we're, we're doing a lot of really interesting stuff. I personally, I've, I've noticed the energy transition pavilion last year, there were about five or six companies there. My, the company that I work with on a, on a daily basis, I work for a company called Tavera. We were in the energy transition pavilion last year. This year we weren't. And the reason was because it just 
grew too fast and we didn't have an opportunity to get into it. So it's amazing to see that this conference is also kind of the whole idea is bringing together different groups to solve the industry's hardest challenges, all that being focused on offshore. And what we're doing here is we are now going and looking at how do you take this knowledge base to solve the energy challenge of the future. So I think it's, it's very exciting and I, I think it's going to continue to grow. Yeah, agreed. Well, that's great, thanks Joe. I really appreciate uh, you having us here as well. Yeah, I appreciate well, it as well. Jerry, Pat, thank you for joining me on the show today. Before we sign off, is there anything else that you'd like to say? Uh, no, I think it's, uh, you know, from a personal perspective, I mean, we're going to continue working and developing this technology and pushing it out to industry, and hopefully it'll be its, uh, you know, it's do its part to help uh, sustainability issues, and we'll be, we'll be one of those, you know, thousand innovations that help us get where we want to get, which is a net zero economy. I really want to thank my company for, um, for allowing us, when I went to my boss and said, hey, listen, I got this crazy idea me and Jerry have been talking about. Can I have a whole bunch of money to do this? And he said, yeah. And and allowed us to not just talk about doing things better, but trying to do things better. So uh, I'm very thankful to my company uh, for allowing us to do this and to bring in this show to you in the last two years. Uh, we're very proud of our Spotlight on the Year technology last year uh, and all these other accomplishments that we did. But it really started with uh, with a yes we don't think you're totally crazy, go ahead and do it. Yeah. And, and add, to add on that, I mean, they allowed us to take it from a laboratory benchtop to a full-scale commercial unit with no contract. So not a lot of private companies will allow you to invest that kind of money in not just R&D, but building a commercial unit, and you have no contract at that time. So yeah. we, we built it in the hope that they would come, and, and, and they are coming. Yep, that's very exciting. Throw yep. mud of dreams. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We built it. Well, thank you again for joining me on the episode today. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. If you're enjoying this show, share it with a friend and leave a review telling me what you're enjoying most or what you'd like to hear more of. If you want more news and energy-related stories, we have all sorts of energy-related podcasts on OGGN. You can find them by connecting with us on, OG on LinkedIn or visiting OGGN.com. One more thing, I have a quick favor to ask. I have a one-question survey that I want you to fill out. The link for that will be in the show notes. Go fill it out, and if you do, we can send you some stickers. And finally, if you have any questions, comments, corrections, or have a story that you would like to share, send me an email or find me on LinkedIn. And until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low carbon, high energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.